What is this garbage you're watching? I want to watch the news. Are you making are you making headway at least? This is the news. So far, 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 I was thinking uh, it'd be cool if uh, with this episode, just the uh, the intro. I mean, this is kind of a no-brainer. I guess you probably even thought about this, but if the intro was just like a clip from from the Peace Cells video when that dad walks in the room and says, I want to watch the news. And the kid says, this is the news. And when he turns the channel, then it goes right into our, our, our theme music. I mean, it's probably predictable, but I think it would probably be most appropriate, you know? Like we're talking, when we're talking classic albums, you don't you don't want to go unpredictable. Not really. Right, that's true too. Like yeah, people a know weird, a weird yeah. like alignment on Peace Cells. Why? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> why have yeah. that? <laughs> right, that's true. So I thought that'd be cool if, because obviously in the in the video you can hear, because back it's old school TV, you can hear the kid change the station, and mm, I thought nice. that well, that's that's the perfect place for our theme music to come in right there. Cool. You're already thinking like a podcast producer now. I like that. Yeah. Well, honestly, that's that's kind of how I look at productions of records too. That's really how I think that was where the light really went on when I started looking at this, like how I would produce, like, or you know, once I get into the studio, you know, after you, you get into the studio and you start kind of feeling the vibe of the room, you start hearing these things coming through the speakers, and you get other ideas, and it's basically just like album production. So I think yep. once I started looking at it from that perspective, it all just kind of started flowing right in, you know. I think it changed my my music album production actually doing these they made me more uh, aware of what's entertaining you know plus the influence from mr motola the purple podcast about you know just dissing short songs uh, long songs mm-hmm. so i, I kind of took that you know and also like when, when you made an episode that's a little too draggy and you can't find a way to chop it down you really feel it when you when you edit it and it's not the best feeling i don't like it that much you know so it's <coughs> right it's a, yeah. it's a long lesson in, in some sort of attempted brevity but still mm-hmm. like only waffling on no it's good talk to ben just now i talked about us like we got him down the maiden a disease to, so it's a perfect 60 minute average it's not set like that we just happened to be that way right and he, and he said yeah it's a more leveled level of waffling and i told him that well it's still based on waffling you know, as much as <laughs> as much as Belgian dessert culture. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. good. <laughs> Waffling. It's a nice word. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is uh, Greg and Jonathan from the Transatlantic State of the Art Speed Metal Podcast. So far, so pod. So what? And this is episode number one of a deep dive of the 1986 Megadeth album. So far. Fuck. Ouch. <laughs> Shit. Hell yeah, anyway. <laughs> I came, <laughs> nice I came rolling here. in on fire. Yeah, and I, just, I uh, think we're going to have to keep that. I think we're going to have to keep that in. Greg Solo, take two, 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 two. two, two, two. <laughs> All right. Welcome back. This is uh, Greg and Jonathan. So far, so pod, so what? The Transatlantic State-of-the-Art Speed Metal Podcast. And this is episode number one of our multi-episode deep dive into the 1986 Megadeth album, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? And Hell yeah! Gonna be our, yeah, it's <laughs> going to be our introduction episode. Yeah, yeah I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be kind of our introduction episode. We're going to talk about some of the particulars um, surrounding the release, um, just prior, the making of, you know, some, um, obviously, the, the lineup both in band and uh, production and engineering, um, some of the label happenings, um, things like that. And um, obviously, we have a, a lot more to come after this, but you got to start at the start. Mm-hmm. Actually, our friends over at the Deep Dive Podcast Network often mention, and you know, for, for several reasons, the Deep Purple Podcast guys, they had uh, these um, episodes on jesus christ superstar i'm not really familiar at all uh, with that one and i'm not sure if i was interested and then the first episode is only going through all the singers on the rep- on record not even talking about the music brilliant mm-hmm. episode great episode you know so it's i think that kind of stuff works in this format and i mean we've been off uh, megadeth proper since insomnia we've been off megadeth proper for a while now <laughs> so uh, we can also take our time going back in there right 
uh, as we did with 86. Did people That's get in right. the car? That's the question. I think people got in the car. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it would it, it would appear based on the uh, the people that have listened to it thus far. I mean, I think it's definitely uh, been our, it might be our most immediately successful episode that we've done. Um, Dave Talik, of course. Well, I, but that's the thing, though. I feel like this one has, has been the fastest rising, mm-hmm. um, fastest rising with the, the most amount of plays in the shortest period of time. My personal favorite also, so far. I think I enjoyed it done. because I like the fact that I mean I mean, oh I hope you weren't disappointed because I know that maybe you saw the year 1986 and thought oh this is the peace sells episode well it kind of wasn't but um we felt no, that's that all it about was impo- waiting that's yes. all about building anticipation yes, exactly and- exactly we feel we felt it was important before we went into the analysis of such a pivotal record for the band that we kind of set the stage in, 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 as far as what the scene entailed around it at the time. So that it can maybe, you know, be a little more uh, pertinent as far as explaining, you know, its relevance to really the the world and the of music that it, it birthed itself into. So, um, and if you maybe got an itch to check out some other bands you were maybe only kind of familiar with or not familiar with at all, well, then it's just a win for fucking everyone. So, um, but if you uh, made it to this point, thanks for sticking to it. And uh, so here's the uh, the just desserts, as they say, and we're gonna get into some shit for sure. Also, though, if you skipped 86 and you're here, that's not fair game. Go back and listen to 986. Go back and listen to yeah. it. We'll wait. We'll wait. <laughs> yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait. We'll be right here. Yeah, we'll be right here. We're waiting. But get in the car. <laughs> We're driving. Yes. We pick the music. Yes. That's how we work. Yes. Don't even think about aux- grabbing that auxiliary cable. It's already oh. plugged into our iPod. Hardwired. <laughs> Hardwired. That's, <laughs> that's not a Metallica reference, by the way. No, it's not. Well, it is, but not intentionally. Yep. All right, so I guess uh, we'll start at the beginning. Um, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying by Megadeth, uh, released September 19th, 1986. Um, put out by uh, Capitol Records, although the record was initially... Um, funded by Combat, right? Yeah, funded and uh, contracted initially by Combat Records. Their contract was purchased from Capitol Records after the album was completed. Purchased by Capitol Records. Purchased by Capitol Records, that's correct. Um and they also remixed the record, too. But um, their budget provided by Combat for this record was definitely a step up mm-hmm. from the first record. Obviously, I'm sure album sales necessitated that. Um, they were given, I believe the number is $25,000 uh, from Combat, which, you know, even back then, that probably wasn't that big of a budget. No, like know? my buddy Christian, when he did the Ethereum albums, they used to have a million Swedish, which is uh, roughly like a hundred grand. You know, to, to make those. That doesn't even register to me. No, it's <laughs> weird, even, right? I, like, I, 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 I've managed to do mine within a thousand bucks normally. The okay, most a little money. bit more, two thousand. <laughs> yeah. Maximum two thousand, really, though, because we were young and poor when we made those records. I yeah. just put in the, the work hours and I just yeah. kind of hassled people for uh, cheap deals. Uh, one yeah. of them connects to Sorcerer and Christian, actually, because I promised that guy, great sound engineer up north. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you customers in Stockholm. Don't worry, I'm a city slicker, and I did get, <laughs> and I did get him sorcerer. So he mixed everything with them. Since. Well, that's cool. So I mean, it was that's cool. That cheap price for mixing men here, that was still a win for him, I would say. Wait, a million, a million in, in Swedish, hundred grand. What is about, that? It's about hundred grand. That's yeah. that's still a lot, dude. Yeah, so much, Holy shit. so much. Like with the Sorcerer, most, it's not that oh my at God. all. No, not at all. No, no. But Therion's a whole different. Oh, Prometal in the height of the CD sales and. Yeah, they sell they sell records. The most I've ever had to to make a record was like forty one hundred dollars, which is, I mean, that's you're not gonna get any money for the musicians with that budget, but no. it's a pretty good budget for 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 tech. Yeah, absolutely. But but that's the thing though four four thousand dollars now, that might be the the modern day equivalent of what twenty five grand would have been in nineteen eighty six as far as the capabilities that you were able to afford yourself. Obviously, it took a lot longer to make records in nineteen eighty six than it does now. But you know, twenty five grand it it got you, it definitely got them more than what Killing Is My Business did, which was twelve grand or whatever sixteen yep. whatever whatever we said in the first episode. Yeah, it was something <laughs> that, that that had to be yeah. upped, right? I remember. It was something yeah, that had to yeah, be exactly. But, uh, but yeah, I so think you're you're right on target there. That it's about uh, uh, you know counting accounting inflation and then also um, accounting for um, slower and more expensive gear. I think something like that. Maybe that twenty five grand would be maybe even less actually. I mean, they really kind of stretched the budget out because as far as like time is concerned, they, 
the the record, as far as I know, was recorded in three separate studios. Um, mm, like somewhere in time. It, well, I'm sure... 86, baby. <laughs> I can't leave it. I'm sure Maiden had a lot more than 25K. That was their most expensive record, actually, I can tell you right now. I'm not surprised about that at all. I, a factoid I have not shared, I think, on my Maiden HD podcast, but uh, that was expensive because Amsterdam, uh, New York City for mixing. New York City, yeah. And... Uh, uh, Bahamas for for tracking. Yeah, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Well, are you guys? Makes, That's rock stars. <laughs> That's rock stars. If you think about it, it makes sense that that was their most expensive because you know coming off of the Power Slave album and tour, go big or go home. They exactly the label was you know they had proved themselves a viable commodity as far as sales are concerned, and so really the label was probably just throwing money at them at that point. So, yeah, however, the, uh, I th- yeah. the band was ambitious. The, the crew was ambitious yeah. after an album exactly. like Power Slave. Like it, it's actually yeah. not as good as Power Slave, though I don't think. And I love Summer in Time, but I had another thing on this whole topic mm-hmm. that I, I'm not sure we raised last time. Uh, wasn't this the year for? All the thrash bands, I mean, Anthrax didn't release one, but the rest of the big four, they all went major label 86, I think. Um, Metallica? They switched from, like, the Susula crew and, and, and such to Elektra. They put, out Ride, they put out Ride the Lightning on Megaforce, and then during right. that tour, they got signed by Elektra. Yes. And then Elektra then reissued Ride the Lightning. Slayer went um, uh, Deaf American? Uh yeah yeah Deaf American for Rain uh-huh. and Blood and um, Anthrax I think when well, they put out Spreading the Disease that was still Megaforce I think they okay. signed to Island Records in, for Among the Living which I believe was recorded in '86 but didn't come yeah. out until '87 but yeah I mean that that's a, another reason why you know '86 is is really the year that it kind of broke out because that's the year of thrash. when the labels come calling it's only because they know there's money to be made. Yeah, you know. but still, also they're coming to get the real thing, right? Yeah, they're exactly. not coming to like uh, adapt it to the masses or anything. They're actually interested in the real thing, and in right. those cases, like a major label is killer. It's the best. It's the best you can have oh, yeah. for the music. Yeah. You know, when they're actually like, uh, I wouldn't say passionate because, like you say, they're still just making money. But uh, mm-hmm. at least they are interested in making money from something uh, unspoiled at that yeah. point. So it's a good That's position. True. It's a nice position. Yeah. Well, because they want to be the ones that spoil it. <laughs> yeah, later on. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how exploitation works because it's it's ex- exploiting exploiting stuff is is not something that uh, appeals well, to me whatsoever. Well, well, we do risk roulette. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we exploit Megadeth a bit, I guess. That's something. Yeah, yeah. but we don't we don't earn shit though. So it's this is uh, this is uh, this yeah. is a passion project. Yes, absolutely. All right, so I believe the the main studio for the tracking was uh, Music Grinder, which I think is in L.A. or Hollywood. Uh, the other two studios uh, I had written down, but then I, I, well, maybe I didn't have it written down, but I know there was two other studios. But the main tracks, I think, yeah, all the California, and the drums, was all that? in Calif- all in Cali, or yeah, all in California, yeah, wow. all in California, and it was uh, co-produced and engineered by um, uh, Randy Burns. Of course, Dave Mustaine was the other producer. Um, also co-engineered by Casey McCacken. And Randy Burns, is he's really a, an interesting, um, um, I don't want to say footnote, but he's an interesting producer in the lexicon of metal records, especially in this era, because he, um, he had a really, really short window of time as far as his productivity or his participation in the music scene. He was really only an engineer or a, a, um, um, a really prevalent engineer from about I think eighty three to maybe maybe ten years only, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually just recently got back into the game. He's starting to do mixes again and stuff. Yeah, like I that, saw a couple but, of interviews, and there's one thing yeah. I can remark on right now is that he's allegedly responsible for the pause in the title track. There's a new yeah. way that was apparently after the fact, like he actually muted a, a couple of shugs or whatever was there. On the 2004s, effect. the original version is there, and the chord rings out underneath it, and it's like it's great. It's a great piece of production to pull up that, yeah, yeah. to pull that riff out. Of that's production. That's production. That's what I. What <laughs> it I is. Like, if someone asks me, like, what's the best production? The best production is the stuff that is very self-explanatory, very easy to get across to anyone. Really, that's the best mm-hmm. stuff. You know, you get it across to the rest of the crew, the rest of the band, or the band if you're not in it, and you get it across to the listeners. That's the, that's good production stuff that is very easy to understand doesn't have to be easy mm-hmm. to do 
But uh, yeah, that's to me that's the sign of a great producer to to pull a move like that. Yeah, and just to kind of give uh, you listeners an idea, uh, if you're unfamiliar or only partially familiar, some of the pedigree that, that he has, or not maybe not pedigree, but his uh, his resume. As far as I mean, if you, if you go look up his discography online, I mean it's it's long and there's a lot of lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of awesome stuff. But I guess for brevity's sake, I just kind of uh, snagged six records that he's either done as either producer or an engineer um, that are records that I just absolutely love. Um, he did he was engineer the uh, the first Suicidal Tendencies album, um, the self titled one, which is obviously it's a, it's a classic. Um, sounds also good too. Reco- sounds good too. Oh, it sounds it's it's raw as hell. I mean, it's it's, it's a punchy. perfect record. It's punchy. Yeah, it's very punchy. Um, he also did uh, um, Seven Churches album by Possessed. Oh yeah, uh, which is obviously fairly pivotal. I and, thought we missed um, that one, but turns out it's eighty-five. Yeah, that is right. And I thought we missed Scream Body Gore. Turns out that's eighty-seven. That's eighty-seven. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you should mention that because Randy Burr has also recorded, uh, produced a Scream Bloody Gore by Death. <laughs> so, there we go. There we go. Uh, and he also uh, did uh, Darkness Descends by Dark Angel, which we discussed uh-huh. in the nineteen eighty-six episode. Um, and he also did uh, Nuclear Assault, Handle with Care, which is a fucking. Mm. I mean, that record. I mean, it's just kind of gets overlooked. It's I the think, one. To is a that the one. With, uh, with nuclear assault, I mean, I'm asking Greg here. Not, I'm not asking the world, but that that's the one, right? For me, like if if I had to, if someone had to say what's the nuclear assault record, mm. some that's what I would say. I would say handle with care is the nuclear assault record for me personally. Right. Um. It's it's awesome. And he also did um, um, coma of souls by Creator. Mm. So, Randy Burns. And he's These just, albums are not terribly alike sonically. I like that. I no, no, it, yeah, none of the. Cool. I, well, I, I would say if there was two that sounded closest to similar would be uh, Seven Churches and Scream Bloody Gore, and that's because Chuck Schuldner went to Randy Burns because he did Seven Churches, and as such, the production on Scream Bloody Gore is is very, very heavily reverb. I think he kind of went for that possessed sound. Was and, he out um, for? Uh, yeah. Yes, at that point, um, Sheldon was he was recording back in a, he was in Florida back at Morrisound for that. Yeah, absolutely. In the swamplands. Yes, but um, yeah, Randy Birds. I don't know if, if if it's because he kind of uh, came and went in a fairly short period of time, or if people get him confused with Scott Burns from Morrisound. I don't really know. Yeah, I think a lot of people. Thing, right? I think a lot of people actually do confuse him with Scott Burns, which is a shame because Randy Burns. I mean, if you even I mean that again, like I said, this is not even. Um, his full list of, of records that he's worked on as producer or engineer, but just even this, these six records. I mean, they're all they're all pivotal. Like they're, they're yeah, all uh, very super cool. important records. You cool know, cool in the way that he seems to be. Um, he seems to be. Oh, and also, and uh, let's not forget, right. he he did peace cells, but who's buying? So you know, there's <laughs> that as well too. Yeah, uh, clearly it seems he works with the bands, right? Because all these albums have an identity of their own. Yeah, of course. And I like mm-hmm. that. Of course, that's that's uh, kind of the style I like to do things as well because yeah. that it's just more fun that way, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, kind of went over Randy Burns. Um, well, I guess we'll we'll touch on since he did the initial tracking and um, the initial mix. I guess uh, the uh, the engineer that uh, Capital once they had uh, purchased the contract of the band, um, they had Paul Laney. Uh, do the remix for Capital. Paul Laney's of note because he ended up doing the, I think the initial production on So Far So Good So What, and um, before they had Michael Wagner take over after Paul Laney, I think was fired by Mustaine. Mustaine fire someone? Never, <laughs> never yeah. happened. There were but, no um, do clause ever. Yes, no do clause exactly. What did you say actually uh, about Luha the fat pig's ass? What is that? Is yes. that like a bar- Hawaiian barbecue or something? What yeah, basically, yeah, basically. <laughs> yes. That's not just yes. in poor taste. Seems a bit excessive of a punishment for someone who just had a bad day as a tech. David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David. <laughs> um manners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So also, uh, one thing I, I did want to make note of, and this is uh, something that people probably have either noticed or, or forgotten of, but even though um, Megadeth, although this record was not put out by Combat Records, um, I think part of the arrangement of uh, Capital 
buying out the contract, if you'll notice, um, all of Megadeth's records, obviously Killing is My Business, of course, because it came out in combat, but P-Cells, So Far, Rust in Peace, Countdown to Extinction, they all have the combat records logo on the back cover. I think that was part of the uh, arrangement when they bought the contract out. And I think the reason why they, it was, it only went up to countdown is I think at that point, combat went out of business that year, I believe. So yes, if you notice combat records logo is on all of Megadeth's records from killing is my business up to countdown. Speaking of that thing about actually wanting the real deal when you sign a fresh metal band in 86, I guess that's not a problem. That only adds like a bit of underground flair to it, right? Right. Probably a good deal for combat, I would imagine. Like that was a, a time of record sales, and they probably got a bunch of money. I mean, it, it was probably a very, very easy negotiation. I mean, Megadeth's, Megadeth's contract was probably not very intense. I mean, at that point, combat was an independent label. They were probably more than willing to take whatever. I mean, we're talking. Capital Records. I mean, at that point, they had really all the money in the world to make that happen, and especially since it was going to really only end up as free promotion for Combat Records. I mean, their logo was on the yeah, record. Yeah, that's a, you know that's a, also smart. It's like a win-win kind of. Yeah, I'd imagine absolutely. like Combat Records headquarters would be like a a doghouse, probably. But or also, like a, if you think the door, about it, the door is just always open. Yeah, There's no door. <laughs> Whatever money they got from that, I mean, they they obviously put into signing other awesome bands, looking at the the track record of of releases that that label put out. They ended up, and they also, kind of kind of forgotten, they were the label that first licensed and distributed uh, Earache Records in America. Also kind of interesting, which is maybe worth uh, discussing, this record, to me, in my opinion, really kind of set the stage and as far as um, establishing um, a, a stylistic aesthetic for what I guess could be kind of looked at as the standard or, for lack of a better word, cliche visualization of what the thrash metal genre became because I think this is the first album cover appearance by Ed Repka. And he's basically the preeminent like thrash metal album cover guy. Like when the thrash revival happened in 2005 or 2006 because of Municipal Ways. It's the style. People started going to Ed Repka again in mass. Yeah, I mean, it's the style. It's the lookbook. It's the whatever you want to call that, you know. Um, Yeah. What's the word for that? When like you get a mood board. It's the mood board for, for, you know, 80s thrash. Also, uh, I want to put in a little clip here. Uh, I think you probably heard it, but uh, maybe like me, not in years. Uh, it's a two minute 30 clip of uh, Dave Mustaine reflecting on PSL's but it was buying because he's also mentioning the cover art. <laughs> the title for PSL's but who's buying uh, was a, a little bit of a massage to the phrase that I'd heard. Patty Smythe was doing an interview in Reader's Digest of all magazines. But the story Patty had talked about, peace sells, but nobody's buying it, right? And I went, okay, well, let's just like kind of do the Michelangelo and, and chop off the extra marble from David and make that perfect. I'd like to describe the album cover to you a little bit. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of you know, this is the United Nations building in New York. I was sitting in a barbecue restaurant right here. And I looked across the street and I thought, and a really cool album cover would be just to see the UN just blown to shit. And, you know, Vic in front of it just going like, for sale. Kennedy was the president when I was uh, a, a kid, so I've seen a lot of stuff. And um, that's what shows up in our lyrics is, is me not being willing to take um, the way that life has been presented to us. I know there's always something better. That's why I've always tried to, to make myself better. The reason that the second record is so hard, a lot of people don't understand this, but you have your whole life to write that first record. I felt tons of pressure making uh, Peace Cells uh, because after doing Killing Is My Business, you know, uh, that record was motivated by revenge. And after getting that first record out, the uh, the inspiration started to become, I think, a little more pure. It was more about enjoying the music instead of using it as a club to beat over somebody's head. And although a lot of bands fail on their second record, I think we uh, 
dodged a bullet and actually proved to the world that we're legit and we're here to stay. One of the best lines I've ever heard was in Purple Rain when the club manager went up to Prince and he said, the only guy that understands your music is yourself. You know, and, and I thought, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy that the only one that understands Megadeth music is me. And I want people to hear the music and go, oh, this is cool, this makes me feel good. Or this makes me feel like I want to fight, you know. It's great to hear professional athletes say, you know, we get ready to take the field or whatever and say we listen to your music. So thank you, David. First time oh. we've had him on in recorded yes. format, right? We haven't had any. I mean, of course, when I sort of went nuts with the the Luha, his fat, uh, fat the fat pigs arse and stuff, um, then that was Dave also. Dave Mustaine, longtime friend of the show. Yeah, he, he made an angry <laughs> vlog about that, and he's so angry sure that did. at the end of it, he couldn't really shut off his phone properly. So he's like fumbling he, with it at the end. He bo he boomered it. <laughs> He yeah. boomered it. <laughs> it's, it's so good. <laughs> well, I guess there's uh, no better time than the present to address, it, in case you didn't already know, the lineup of the record. Uh, obviously, we have Dave Mustaine on lead guitar um, and vocals, uh, Dave Ellison on um, bass, and I think background vocals, and obviously on lead guitar, Chris Poland, drums and percussion, uh, Gar Samuelson. Um, now, as you will remember from, well, or you don't remember, or you don't know, but uh, obviously after the Killings My Business record, uh, Chris Poland uh, departed from the band. I, I guess he had some, was having some legal issues at the time, and uh, and such. He didn't do the touring uh, for that record. A guy named Mike Albert from, I believe, Captain Beefheart's band uh, did the tour. But I guess um, between um, the end of the tour and the start of rehearsals for the PCL's record and Ultimate Recording, uh, according to uh, Dave Mustaine's autobiography, uh, Chris's legal troubles had uh, had been, you know, finalized or, or <laughs> massaged or, or whatever, completed or whatever the word is we're looking for, and uh, and as such, he rejoined the band in time, which is uh, which is really really great because I I think even though he didn't write any of the music on this record, um, his solos on this record were fucking fantastic. <laughs> I think Dave would actually probably agree to that as well. That um, Poland had a, a, a like a pretty big impact on this record. Yeah, absolutely. You know why deny that? He speaks of Gar all the time, uh, but you know Gar is uh, also dead, so it's uh, yeah, it's kind of tasteful, I guess, to 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 honor him. But uh, he speaks of him all the time, not as often about Chris, but that must have been a package, though. That's something that yeah. Dave Unir, Dave Uner said that that was sort of a package, like uh, when they got Chris in, Gar made more sense. They already mm -hmm. liked his drumming, but he needed like a fusion companion uh, to, you know, really bal balance out the the. Uh, I think the like a lot of people in bands, they um, maybe uh, romanticize the uh, the origins or the the lineup that was in place before um, it before it gets complicated by all the trappings and and tropes yeah. of of what happens, you know, before all the money gets into play, before all the drama comes into play. But then again. I also don't realize. I mean, I I also realize I'm talking about a uh, <laughs> a band that really had a bad drug problem really from the onset. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear when I hear legal issues, yeah. not legal yeah, issues. Those heroin issues. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they were they were wrought with drama and and bad habits from the get go, and and obviously these these issues became um, unworkable by the end of the touring cycle for this record. But like. I just think it's funny that, you know, <laughs> Dave Mustaine has, has had so much turmoil with his lineups and, you know, throughout the entire really existence of the band that, you know, the one that he holds closest to his heart and talks about the most romantically is the one where <laughs> the fucking dudes in the band. They're all junkies. Were, were, they were fucking pawning their gear for drugs. <laughs> pawning others' gear. <laughs> yeah exactly like yeah you know, it's true like, and then like getting that guy from captain beefheart seems they want to still have like a, a junkie obviously like yeah. he plays guitar with, with beefheart it must be a junkie right yes of course a qualified guest as we say in swedish 
Yes. <laughs> Qualified <laughs> guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe the guy who they got from Captain Beefheart, um, he was a recommendation of their manager at the time, Jay Jones, who was... A druggie. Yes, yes. I think he was the one that showed up with all the heroin, coke, and hamburger meat. <laughs> Chemical uh, dependencies. And there was one part where we were getting ready to leave to go out on tour, and Chris had gone off someplace and ended up not being able to leave on tour. And we had to scramble to find the first viable contender we could find that could play those songs. So I'm in crash course mode teaching this guy named Mike Albert, the lead guitar player from Captain Beefheart. So that was interesting. Uh, The time we were in Atlanta and we were in a taxi and the taxi driver drove over a human being going 60 miles an hour. Was interesting. Gar driving off the freeway on the way to Cincinnati and taking out one of those giant mileage signs and almost killing us all was very strange indeed. Um, Peace House lyrics were actually written uh, with a very fat felt pen on the wall in the rehearsal studios in Vernon, California. I had been living there because we were all homeless and I was living at the rehearsal building, which was dreadful. No food, no nothing, no showers. It's a lot of stuff like that. There's really a lot going on here, even just beyond the usual. I mean, it'd be easy for us to just say, oh, the record is great, the songs are great. Everyone knows that. That's why you're listening to this. I mean, you know this record rules. Um, But again, even in... Um, peripheral things like the really the kind of what became the standard look of thrash metal you know the whole aesthetic of just an Ed Repka album cover and and things like that I mean and that's, jeans that's really a, fucking tight sneakers yeah. really fucking yes big. that's right huge <laughs> fucking sneakers so big <laughs> huge oh huge sneakers yes I mean really this this record really is just I mean it's a it's a it's a fucking it's a walloping you know, it's really just a, uh, it's a, it's a pulverizing, uh, I can't wait to dig into the songs. It's going to be great. We got a lot yeah. to talk about here, you know, but yes, obviously, you know, this record uh, went on to become, uh, it is a platinum record. Um, I don't believe it w- went platinum until uh, after Megadeth really peaked um, with Countdown. Cause you know, a lot of times when, once bands really hit their apex, you know, people get in there and then they'll start to backtrack and purchase the records and you know luckily they had on the strength of you know their success of countdown i think just that alone turned their entire back catalog except for killing platinum and i don't know if i think rust in peace was platinum but i think so far so good so what and 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 uh, peace cells all both went platinum as a result of uh, their their later success so you know it's definitely a classic and also um I don't, maybe you don't know this, um, but over here, back in the day, we used to have a show called MTV News, and mm-hmm. and it was it was an actual program that they would air like every fucking Sunday on MTV. It was like a half hour show, but they would have MTV News um, breaks like throughout the day of programming on MTV. And with the peace cells little thing, right? Yes, with the peace cells do 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 do. It would go. If I remember correctly, it was you hear it do 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 first, and <laughs> apparently just because I mean it's you want to talk about the the ridiculousness of how much of a racket copyright law is. There's a, there's a certain amount of like either notes or, or beats or seconds where you can get away with using someone else's material before you have to pay them a royalty. And adding and on top of that, that's probably not even true. That's actually a myth, I think. But uh, that's what what Dave said, yeah, about how they got yeah. away with them with not paying them. But I think they just actually just stole it, to be honest, because I've read a little bit into this, and that seems to be a bogus rule. It doesn't seem to actually exist. In Cincinnati, they said... There's no such thing as fair use when it applies to samples. If you want to sample anything, no matter the length, you get a license. California said, let's use common sense. Let's, let's consider this fair use. You don't need a license. So that's a really interesting dilemma we're in right now because that Ninth Circuit ruling applies to the Ninth Circuit, which is California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Montana, Idaho, Arizona, Hawaii, Alaska, and Guam. 
<laughs> it's a big, big thing. So if you want to sample, you should be sampling in the West. And if you want to sue a sampler, you sue them in Nashville. Because <laughs> the Sixth Circuit ruling will rule over Michigan, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So that's a strange dilemma we have right now. It's called a circuit split. It's common practice type thing. You know, it's something that has been done and, yeah. <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine. You shouldn't get one. No, you shouldn't. Honestly, I think it's a bull. Brian Eno made that Windows logo sound Mm -hmm. when you start up a a Windows. He got a good paycheck for that. That's way shorter. And it's way, yeah, I mean, mean, really, I mean, if that is the rule, then, or if MTV did, I mean, they got away with one because, I mean, they fucking played that bass line every day, four or five times a day for years they could at least <laughs> have, have, have you know they could at least have hired a bassist to re-record it or something you know that's, that's at least their own recording uh, you know i, I don't, don't know they, they shouldn't have gotten away with that to be honest but no maybe, they shouldn't may, maybe like megadeth liked being on there all the time we talked about in our very first episode zero that um, you know dave was this correspondent political correspondent with his huge specs on they were yeah. they were kind of favored by mtv so i think they probably didn't want to sue them right no actually you know that's a really good point you know even if you know, because if they wanted to make a stink of it, it was almost like um, one hand washing the other. It's almost like you don't you don't bite the hand that's feeding you. Yeah. You know, like Me- Me- Megadeth at that time was getting tons of attention, good attention from MTV, which at that point was obviously a lot more important than it is now for the music industry. And so it was kind of like, well, I guess we'll just look the other way. Mm. Because if they wanted to make a stink of it, number one, that's going to really affect their standing with the network who at that time was firmly in their corner and, and promoting them really constantly. And, but also if they want, not only that, I mean, it's free promotion. If they had said, if they wanted to make a stink of it, I mean, Megadeth really served to, to lose nothing or, or to, they served to, to gain nothing and lose a lot. They, they could have had the goodwill of the network severed and pulled out from underneath them. And they could have just said, oh, you want money for this? All right, well, then fuck it. We're just going to use someone else's song. I mean, uh, (laughs) this that I'm going to say now is as little of a Diddy Trump reference as Hardwired was a Metallica reference, but it's the art of the deal. That's what it is all about, right? Uh, Like, I figured as I got older, especially as I got older, like uh, the written rules, the laws and stuff are always second to the deal. Mm -hmm. It's always the deal. And that's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess most of you, if you listen to this type of shows, have heard of bands settling something in private court, right? That's the right. deal again. It's the deal. You mm-hmm. don't look in the book. You're like, okay, what's our interests? How would they collide? What's the deal? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you go. So yeah, a deal with MTV and probably a favorable one because like uh, Kiko L and uh, Dirk both got in to the band via videos from this record when they were aired on MTV. So, and that's, that's another thing. Uh, yeah. That's just two people in close proximity. So exactly. imagine how many... Uh, yeah, are not currently playing in Megadeth <laughs> that also got introduced uh, yeah. this way, right? Yeah. So, like, I think that's a good point. Good At that time, it probably would have done them more harm than good. I mean, yeah, they could have gotten some money or whatever, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, would have been biting off their nose to spite their face. You know, a, a so. one-time settlement is not. Yeah, great. it's not great it's not for your legacy. It. It's, it's actually it's shit for your it. legacy. It's, that's yeah. nothing for your legacy. Like it's just a no, cash nothing. cash out. Nothing exactly. And also, that's that's like you mentioned. This was also an important record because it did feature their first ever music videos that they made, uh, P Cells and uh, and Wake Up Dead. Yes, I haven't seen Wake Up Dead actually. I've never seen it. You you never seen that video? No, I haven't. So oh, we, we dude, could do like awesome. live reaction with me on that it's one. It's awesome. It's really cool. And matter of fact, I think they they did something in that in that uh, video. They they play behind a cage. I saw and, that in the thumbnail, so that's no spoiler. Yes. But let's not spoil more because yeah. then I can we can actually like air my first impressions of it. Oh yeah, I won't, when, I won't say more than that. that but I think that. that but I, I think allegedly they had intended to to take that on tour. I don't know how true this is, but I think <laughs> Ellison at one point had said. I think it might have actually been on, even on the Rusted Pieces video that they had intended to take that on the road. But Ministry, I think, took the idea. They beat him to the, uh, ah. the beat him to the punch first.
is that probably is inspired by like uh, dive bar gigs, you know, with the chicken. Yeah, the, bl- the, the Blues Brothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I think the, that's something Dave Murray referenced when they played like a little shitholes in Australia. And there was one place, it was kind of in the outback, in the middle of nowhere. And it was a bit like Bob's Country Bunker, kind of uh, Blues Brothers sort of thing. Not quite the chicken wire, but we, it was a tiny backstage, a little room. And then when we went there, there was all these like tables set up and um, people were like eating dinner and stuff. And it was like, oh, okay, maybe they're going to take the tables away, you know, later on and we're going to go on. But no, they didn't. They, they, they were there the whole night. And, and it was funny, like in between songs, you hear, you know, table number 76, you know, your steak ready. Hey, you the good old boys? That's us. Well, I'm sure glad to have you boys here. I'm Bob, and this here is my place. <laughs> I guess you boys want to get your steel guitars and everything set up on the stage, don't you? Claire, get over there and turn those stage lights on and get these boys going up there. Excuse me, Sonny. I guess I'll give this to you. You're the tallest one. Okay. What is it? Well, that there is a list of the songs that you boys will be playing tonight. Well, it, it, honestly, it, it looks just mostly more like they're, they're playing in a wrestling ring with like a, a steel cage around it, you know. Which is, I mean, it's got a it's got a place in my heart for that, for sure, of course. But it's a really cool video. It's and honestly, and that's it's. You know what? I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for you. But we'll say that along with, um, along with the album art and the look of, you know, the the Repka, you know, type art. A music video like Wake Up Dead was also an aesthetic enforcing video that helped kind of show people who weren't aware of this scene. This is how people behave at these type of shows, you know. So I feel like that this record was really important in because Metallica, you know, they didn't do videos. They didn't have. They didn't do videos yet. Two years later. yeah, a couple years later. So they didn't have that visual element of of reaching out to people and showing well, this is what happens in this world. And and Megadeth, a video like Wake Up Dead really did I think inform people as far as like what what was really going on in this scene, you know? I mean, you'll see it and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It'd be nice cuz the last one I saw was um, I don't know, I think it was Soldier On or something. So it'd be nice to kind of wash my eyes clean with the some oh, nice dude. old 86 well, stuff. I mean, the video for Wake Up Dead is just, I mean, it's exploding with exuberance and energy. I, I would think you would find it to be much more enjoyable than another bullshit Call of Duty modern Megadeth video. It's terrible. <laughs> the worst part for me is that it looks so expensive, too. So that's less like money in a well, you know, just throwing it in a well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like that, that annoys me. as The producer in me anno- gets annoyed by that. Like, you spent all this cash for this shit? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, if it's hokey and cheap, that's kind of nice. You know, I kind of find that. I I like the punkiness of of such things. But the worst is like when it's shit because like the thinking behind it is crap. And then they just spent a lot of money. That's the absolute worst combination, I think, in in terms of producing entertainment. You know, yeah. (laughs) Stains the record even a little bit, you know, that the video is so shit. Like that, that, that kind of shit can splash onto the good stuff a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that sense, it's nice to be uh, heading into 86 because we've done plenty of new stuff lately. Uh, I haven't been listening to the new record since we did it, I must be honest. Have you? Uh, I'm, I am, uh, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Well, I feel <laughs> like we listened to it so much. Like, I, I, honestly, like I could... I know we, it. When, I know the record. When we, when we do these dives and these analysis episodes, you know, I feel like that I really... I get so invested into it that I just... I almost don't even have to... Like, I could... Like we'll be back. I can picture it in my head. Uh, no. You know, I, I could hear the songs. I hear the choruses in my in my head right now, and I haven't listened to it since we did that last episode. Actually, there are the, four uh, four songs. I throw on four or maybe even five songs. Uh, not not at the same time every time, but it's uh, the title track, "Life in Hell," "Celebutant," "Police Truck," and "Mission to Mars." Those yeah. those I like to play, and that's a nice, fun listen to be honest. Yeah. Even if you play that. Oh, uh, actually, thing. speaking of which, "We'll Be Back" just got nominated for a Grammy over here. Hope it wins. You know, it'd be nice if it won. Probably won't. It'll probably be like uh, (laughs) disturbed or something. (laughs) Probably be disturbed or ghost. But obviously, I wouldn't mind if ghost won. You know, I think that ghost just won an American Music Award over here. 
for like best rock album or some Killing shit like it that. Commercially, uh, yeah. dude. I mean, their I'm management all, is American. You, you probably all, know it's American. I'm a hundred percent in favor of Ghost winning all the awards over here, just because to me it's 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 really it's pulling people into the underground and they don't yeah. even know it. Like yeah, they they played awesome. uh, on their last tour, they played Florida, in Tampa. Oh yeah, they did a bit of zombie um, ritual. Right? They played some of zombie ritual. But I didn't like I, the labeling on that fucking clip on the internet. Like cover <laughs> zombie ritual cover is like yeah, they played eight seconds of it. Come on, dude. Yeah, it's but not a cover. What, no, it's, <laughs> but I like no, it. I, don't still, get me wrong. I love the I love the gesture, but it's not a fucking cover. Anyway, uh, still very cool. I love that Tobias is using all of his power for good things like that. I mean, he, he's actually he's in your in your boat to a large extent. Like he likes his glam stuff. He likes his uh, yeah. It is hard rock. He likes his uh, even when it almost turns into pop. You know, Cinderella. I don't know if he likes Cinderella, but you do. And uh, oh, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I bet he, you that, and, I and bet you that dude likes Cinderella. I, I, I bet think you he does. does. I think he does. Yeah. I bet you. And he likes death metal. Like he's passionate about that. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So, uh, he's pretty much like a, a super successful Greg. Not to put you down though. <laughs> <laughs> that was not my you know, intent, dude. <laughs> dude, when you said when you said it's almost like, I thought um, he's gonna say a super successful Greg, and luckily you did not disappoint. So. <laughs> you can handle that. No, I mean, no, I, I mean, listen. When when you when you when you're right, you're right. I mean, yeah. I mean, that dude does. He likes all the same music, and he's he somehow became a pop star and is using his powers to expose the world to death metal. Yeah. So, that's I cool. mean, that's all that's all stuff I would do for sure if I if I had the ability to do so. One of the best songwriters, I think. Uh, like uh, I mentioned, Christian before, I can mention him again. He's like hell bent on Tobias songwriting, but for me, like in Para, I've listened to less than I have listened to uh, Sick to Dine and the Dead. I prefer Sick to Dine and the Dead above Impera. Impera for me was such an easy listen, so it's kind of like was, I was done with it after two spins. Like there's yeah. nothing, nothing there. I mean, yeah. I just talked about how little I've been listening to Sick the Dying and the Dead, but it was more right. than two spins to really like grasp it. I really enjoyed yeah. doing the episodes, but I'm not ever yeah. gonna listen to Junkie again. That's for sure. No, oh, Junkie, yeah. terrible Junkie's, song. Terrible. Junkie's song. not a good song. Atrocious. Atrocious. Song. Yes. But you guys already know that. We've already, yes, yes. <laughs> we've already how, discussed did, that. How are we doing that's on a, the background here? That song uh, sucks. Are we getting um, into the actual release, right, of the album? Um, yeah, uh, came out, uh, yeah, it just came out September 86. Um, they supported it basically with a couple tours uh, through 86 and 87 uh, with Motorhead. And um, that would have been the Orgasmatron tour and uh, Alice Cooper when he was out for his Constrictor tour. You know, things came to a head with the uh, came to a head with the Daves and uh, the Gar and Chris portion of the band over some business arrangements, and obviously, in classic Megadeth fashion, uh, cruising, riding high, and then half the band needs to get fired. So yeah, <laughs> the lineup changes for P cells uh, didn't take place until the tour was over, and I think that happened because we just. We just were so different from, from each other, you know. Gar was a lovable person and he was a fantastic drummer, but he was, he was clearly unhappy. He was unhappy with his job at BC Rich. He was unhappy drumming for us. And I think that he was a very creative person and he wanted to have his own band, have his own studio. And that's why after we parted ways with him, he went down to Florida and developed a, a, a second, uh, approach to having a career in the metal business, which I was really happy for him. There was also the other part about when we were ready to go on tour, we always had to go with Gar and Chris and a, a handful of hundreds around town to go find a, all of our equipment because they would take stuff they didn't care. They knew it wasn't theirs. They knew it was mine. They knew it was stuff that they played on, but that we got them or um, stuff that they got that they figured uh, I'll hawk it, I'll get another one, 
you know, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. I, I don't know. And um, by the time it was time for us to get home, I couldn't say the words fast enough, you're fired. Quick question for you. Uh, I was thinking about this just now. Um, how, how, is it that fucking hard to do drugs? Like, uh, I've, I've been open that I've meddled. What do you mean? Is it hard to do drugs in a, in a reasonable amount? I never ran out of money because of it. Uh, like, I never <laughs> skipped a day of work because of it. I almost did a few times, but I mean, it's not that fucking hard because it's not like I'm a, a super uh, disciplined well, fella. Not really. Like, uh, it's just that uh, maybe I'm better at drugs. Than yeah, I would I say that if that's... Or maybe it's heroin. But I also, never did heroin. It could well, be I that. Think, maybe I think, that's the, like the, the tipping point. I think that is a... I think that's a big... <laughs> that's a big difference. I mean, I've known, you know, I've known people who've done heroin. I've known people that haven't done heroin, but they've done other drugs. And there's definitely a difference in their, um, yeah, in their day to day lives, we'll say. And I think that once you go to that extreme, you know, there's really, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm 40 now, so I hope I don't, <laughs> you know, I feel like my window to start doing heroin is, hopefully closed, you know, knock on wood, I guess. But like, but, um, you know, I don't know. I just think that it's, you know, it, but also we're looking, like you said, you've never missed work. I mean, at that point, those guys aren't working. I mean, at this point they're, they're basically being, well, if you miss a session or if you start a session too late yeah. or something like the, the guys in black Sabbath, uh, Dio was complaining, right? Like those guys turn up at, at three, three o'clock in the afternoon. That's no, not good. That's not good. But uh, also, I mean, uh, these are like, people who are on record labels that have drug budget drug budgets into the year so oh, yeah, like, and producers with yeah methamphetamine exactly yeah so, so on, basically yeah. they're i mean they're stuck in a circle listen i mean the one thing i learned that was kind of like maybe not mind-blowing but even at my low level of uh in in engagement to the, the music industry even at my level mm -hmm. of touring which is like fucking ground floor people want to People want to drink with you. People want to hang out with you. People want to do drugs with you. And they're more than willing to yes. give it to you really at any level. So if, if that stuff was available at my level, I mean, holy shit. Like, what must it be like at at several levels up, you know, to where you're on Capitol yeah, Records yeah. and you're, you know, selling 500,000, a million copies of a record. You know, I mean, it's just like it's, you know, it's it's got to be intense and so i can i can understand how maybe it could be um daunting to kind of keep something like that together but also as i believe it says in the mustaine book there was money issues in play and mustaine hmm. was writing all the music and as such he was you know getting a lion's share of well he was getting all the publishing money because he was the only one writing it and you know ellison was smart enough to know where the bread was buttered in the band. And obviously it became, well, for years it became the Daves and the other two guys, you know, as who was, as far as who was going to be in the band. And so, you know, uh, Gar and Chris, they weren't getting any money. And, and that was the end of that. It's unfortunate, but you know, I don't, that, that lineup definitely wasn't built to last. It was built to be good. We never saw that lineup be shitty, you know? Like unfortunate, but extremely common. Yeah. I re remember that uh, quote from uh, J.K. Lee that he, he told, uh, he, he's like, I, I guess he confronted Ozzy or something about, you know, all that stuff that we don't have time to discuss uh, re regarding the, regarding the uh, writing credits oh, for yeah. Bark at the Moon and so forth. And I, apparently what he got as a reply, this could be dramatized by him. I don't care because it's fun. It's Ozzy saying, I fucked you, man. Yeah. I fucked you. Yeah. No, no, that's a hundred percent true. And it was it was worse than that because it was like it's like, listen, it's how it goes. I got fucked, I fucked you, and then someday you're gonna fuck someone else. And I was like, that's like That's that's a very bad that attitude. Is, that's 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 the root of, of, of these yes, problems. Like, to, to to accept them as part of the that game. Is a, that's a cycle good. of abuse is what that is. It's like well Yeah, but I, I kinda know who told him that. Um, you know, it wasn't God. Yeah. Let's yeah. say <laughs> it was um, a daughter of a mom. Yes, I think, exactly. Gave him that. Gave him that logic. Exactly. Well, yeah. After that I was never that deep in there. Like most of my music cash, I've just I've just written an invoice, and I've just sent it somewhere. Like there's no 
there's not much of uh, there's still conflict of course if you do sound uh, but uh, it's easier like there's there's like a, a union and shit but actually a pretty weak union like sweden is a strong country for unions but in showbiz it's american union level like it's, not very strong the unions are 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 tough because the people that could help the most are the ones who a union would benefit the least you know because yes. really the unions yeah. they level the playing field and you need powerful people and the powerful people don't want it to be level because that's going to eat at their bottom line. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. So it's, it's really, really tough. I mean, it's, I mean, I'll never ever say they're not good. They definitely serve a purpose, but I think that in order for those things to run best, you need to have the top of the food chain in on it and the top of the food chain will never, ever be in on it. And since we're on, on this, the business, uh, how did this album do? Peace cells. Yeah. Um, it charted, uh, in the, the top 200 and obviously it's a it's a platinum record i'm not sure if it's gone multi-platinum but it's been platinum for at least 30 years so definitely was successful you know obviously um it was definitely a a wise investment you know the the music videos definitely helped them you know at that point you know higher i think they actually did tours with overkill on this record as well too so i mean they they they, they did all the right moves i mean they had they had the the touring with the band that's kind of you know part of their scene they Bro- did kind of brothers, yeah, kind of yeah. brothers. and then alice cooper yeah. kind of like what metallica with did with and they also and they also had a, yeah. a run with motorhead too which is basically like a seal of approval of like the godfather of it all you know so it's a pivotal record i mean obviously it sounds a lot better than the first record the songs are it sounds great i mean it's a lot of the material um kind of predates even the first album um i would say maybe half of these songs were in their earliest set list even like in the carrie king era um but obviously i mean i'm sure they're you know like like we've talked about before sometimes you just take songs longer to get to records because they just they're not ready you know you know they're they're there but yeah. they're and they're almost there but maybe they're not ready for for wax yet you know, so. like that version of uh, "Wake Up Dead." We'll get into that when we do "Wake Up Dead." But there was this version, "Blood and Honor," with more lyrics on it. Yeah, same riffs, yeah. but more lyrics, and you know, the same trajectory with Maiden doing "Killers." Half of it, at least, is older, older right. stuff, like er- earlier than the first mm-hmm. record. And, yeah, like with my old band, Canopy, the second release we did because then we had a label, right? I just thought like our second demo was pretty good, so I'm not gonna uh, turn that into a full length because I want to release that and I want to play mm-hmm. it better. Uh, you know, I know we can play better now because you know in the beginning you get a lot better by each year. Of course. So we did that too. You know, and it's interesting when I listen back to them because now I hear on the second record that some of the stuff there is more dated than on the first record. The first record is more sloppy, but it's actually a bit cooler to me mm-hmm. now. So you know, that kind of stuff interests me, like um, how time affects or doesn't affect uh, the creative process it's weird um, usually time time affects the practical process more so i think uh, so it's interesting right how it feeds over it's there. weird and i think it i'm actually borrowing this quote from lars ulrich in the some kind of mm. monster movie when he's looking at one of his paintings and he's saying well like what when is a painting done when is it when is a song done you know, and it's just like it's good questions no, though. But, to be fair, it's pretentious but good. It's pretty good. I mean, it's it's pretentious, but it, it makes perfect sense. Like, what is the thing that makes a song that you have in 1984 that is enough of a song that you're playing it live? Like, what is the thing that you have that isn't there in 1984 that you find over the next couple of years that in 1986 you say, okay, this is done. This is ready for 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 the album. You know, it's like, what is that thing? It's just like, it, it's really, it's all, I don't... It's the judgment of the creator, really. Like, the judgment of of, of, of its maker, really. That's it's what it is. intangible. The, the fact is, of course, it's never done. That's no, fact, you know, that's true. You can always make it make it better, yeah. I guess, you know, or better is maybe a dodgy word to use in this context, but you can always, at least you can always alter it. Yeah, exactly. So it's never really done. And the painting, you could add another stroke or something. Yeah. So it's never done. I read an interview uh, from... Uh, Trey Azigtoth from Morbid Angel, and he, I think he was talking about Altars of Madness, and he said one of his things, that I think when he was younger, it was his goal to to play stuff that could not be replicated by anyone but him, and he said the only way to do that was to <laughs> to record, <laughs> I mean, total, total bonkers fucking 
wild man is obviously you know sicko like, as we say he re- yeah he's sicko yeah he records the songs i think he said yeah and and i recorded the songs one way and uh i don't play them the same to this day like he he's, so, he's so elastic after he's he so recorded elastic. them he he's figured out he figured he figures out new ways to play it differently every right. year but i mean even if you <laughs> Just, if you go past altars yeah. if you go to like god of emptiness first time i heard that it was like yeah this is a bit different you know, it's like backwards. It's uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah, it's a great band that we need to talk about in length, at length sometime. Yeah, we oh have yeah, to. but now we're doing this mega podcast, so uh, we're, we're preoccupied. But uh, Morbid Angel will be there. Yes, you know, yeah, Morbid Angel is definitely kind of bubbling in the undercurrent of uh, so far so pod. So what? Such an important band for for me. Likewise, Such an important band, and especially Trace Trace Riffage is like a, a sick. sick. Megadeth first started, you were one of the most kind of extreme bands uh, in terms of music, and now really death metal has taken over from that and has become even more brutal. Um, Andreas wants to know what do you think of the, the death metal bands like sort of um, Day Aside and uh, those kind of bands? Well, it's flattering that, that he would say something like that, and, and you know, I've pretty much been aware of the fact how much my role was in creating a big part of the whole scene that's that's developed in, in heavy metal, thrash metal, and death metal, black metal, all that mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Uh, when I started off with uh, the guys in Metallica, we had no idea what we had discovered or what we were creating. And uh, I think that death metal right now, uh, it's, it's something that I'm not particularly too aware of. I know what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't really know a lot of the bands that are in it. And um, I, think, I, I think it's necessary because um, just as for as many people there are that, that are out there that want to hear that kind of music mm-hmm. there has to be that many good bands and there's a lot of great death metal bands mm-hmm. I think that basically Gets us uh, to where we're at as far as uh, the introductory episode of uh, Peace Sells But Who's Buying. So I want to get into the music on on this record. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. we got a lot to dig into. Yep. And also, it's weird. For a classic record, there's a couple things on this record that I'm really kind of not too into. But the, th- the things that are on this record are so great that... Anything I'm not really crazy about, it, it just gets canceled out by how great the great shit is. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Before I growl, I, in honor of, uh, of uh, I guess, in, in homage, uh, I will say uh, Skalt uh, Borges Salming. Mm, yeah, of course. Hockey in the background as well, as per usual. Always sets the mood over in Greg's studio. Yeah. <laughs> My studio, also known as my 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 living room. Skål to börja salming and see you. So far, so far, 